This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Friday. We're doing one more day of endocrinology questions. We hope your studying is going well. Daphna, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. We've got a, an IDM question coming up. You got to know the IDM facts. Cool. They love IDM, for by sure. Way, just for together. sure. And I mean, and that is really a clinically relevant run, right? We see it almost every day. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, Okay. This is question 13. A neonatologist is evaluating an infant of a diabetic mother who was born at term weighing 4.6 kilos. The infant appears plethoric and is admitted to the NICU for management of hypoglycemia. The family asks the neonatologist to discuss neonatal complications of maternal diabetes. How astute. (laughs) Which of the following findings in the newborn is not associated with maternal diabetes? Is it A, hypoglycemia, B, hypercalcemia, C, increased intracardiac septal thickening, D, mild surfactant deficiency, or E, polycythemia? These are the questions. You don't think too much about them. You take the yeah, points. Just and you answer them. You know answer, this one. <laughs> don't overthink this, people. But I mean, I'm serious. Like These questions will come up and you'll be like, oh my God, Like, is there anything else? No, just grab the points. Hypercalcemia, yeah. done, moving on. Right. We just told you that it was hypocalcemia associated with infants Mm -hmm. of a diabetic mother. And infants of a diabetic mother are at increased risk for multiple problems after birth. Hypoglycemia typically occurs as a result of attenuation of the maternal supply of glucose once that umbilical cord is clamped. And then the fetal hyperinsulinemic state continues in the short term and lack of maturity of the counter-regulatory hormones may result in this persistent neonatal hypoglycemia because of ongoing hyperinsulinism. In addition, the effect of insulin as a growth factor may result in intracardiac septal and ventricular wall thickening, which can lead to a transient cardiomyopathy. IDMs are at increased risk of having respiratory distress syndrome, although the risk has decreased over the years. This is probably because of more accurate fetal assessment of gestational age. But they have a functional surfactant deficiency, and the mechanism for surfactant deficiency may result from increased fetal insulin inhibitory action on fibroblast pneumocyte factor, which typically acts on the type 2 alveolar cells to produce surfactant. IDMs are at increased risk of polycythemia, although the mechanism is not well understood. In addition, IDMs are also at an increased risk for hypocalcemia, not hypercalcemia, possibly as a result of a delay in the neonatal parathyroid hormone surge due to urinary magnesium losses. This can decrease parathyroid hormone secretion, thus resulting in hypocalcemia. Very good. All right, Daphne, question 14. A neonatologist is asked to consult with a pregnant woman with hyperthyroidism. The woman inquires if her own thyroid hormone crosses the placenta to the fetus. There's no way somebody else. <laughs> TSH! <laughs> All of the following can cross the placenta except you have TRH, TSH, T4, radioactive iodide, and TSH receptor antibodies. You said? 
TSH. TSH. We actually answered a similar question. We're going to keep going. Daphne, question 15. Whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not getting the benefit. Well, I, of now I get to answer. Now I get to ask you the question. Fine. You go. Fine. <laughs> yes. I already did a uh, question like this already. So now it's your turn. Question 15. This might be the hardest question of the day. I don't know. Yeah. A neonatologist is called to the delivery room of a term infant with respiratory distress. The infant's initial physical examination reveals mild respiratory distress and an unexpected finding of ambiguous external genitalia. Review of the maternal records reveals an amniocentesis showing a 46XX karyotype. Oh, which of the following etiologists is least likely to be attributed to an over-virilized female? Okay. You want to give me choices? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Whatever. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> okay. Is it A, 5-alpha reductase deficiency, B, 11-beta hydroxylase deficiency, C, 21-hydroxylase deficiency, D, aromatase deficiency, or E, maternal androgen and progesterone therapy? Which one is least likely to give an over-virilized female? Hmm. Mm. Um, all right, let me just look at these answer choices again. Yeah, take your so, time. So, an over-viralized female, the least likely. So, I like the last one. The last one seems like a fairly easy one, mm -hmm. maternal androgen and progesterone mm -hmm. therapy. Yes, that is correct. I remember that um, in terms of the um, 21 and alpha um, beta hydroxylase. Um, there is um, the the twenty one beta hydroxylase will give you ambiguous female genitalia because you you because um, they we said there's three arms right you have the mineral mm -hmm. corticosteroids you have the you have the cortisol um, you have the you have the corticoid you have the mineral corticoid and because the twenty one and the eleven are blocking the path it's sort of pushes more of the progesterone to be transferred to testosterone. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not surprising that there could be um, virilization of a, of a, of a 40X, 46XX karyotype. Um, so then you're left with the 5-alpha reductase deficiency and the aromatase deficiency. Mm -hmm. And it might be, I mean, I have a little trick here, so I'm not going to get into the, the biochemistry of it. But okay. <laughs> I remember that um, the one that is more likely to cause a problem in female is the one with the aromatase deficiency. And I think of aroma like a perfume, and that's mm -hmm. like something that women usually put on. So uh, aromatase deficiency, I would say, yes, can cause an overvirus. So which leaves me with the least likely one being 5-alpha reductase deficiency. And you'll tell us why, I guess. Whoa, buddy, that was, you did a very good job there. That is the there correct answer. 5-alpha reductase deficiency is an autosomal recessive disorder that limits the conversion of testosterone um, to the more effective version, dihydrotestosterone. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, Males with 5-alpha reductase deficiency have ambiguous genitalia with appropriately differentiated Wolfian structures, absence of malarian-derived structures, a small phallus, a urogenital sinus with perineal hypospadias, and a blind vaginal pouch. Later in life, males have progressive virilization with decreased facial hair and small prostates. 
testicles at 12 is sometimes used to reference to 5-alpha reductase deficiency because of virilization and descent of the testes to the labial location at the time of puberty. Females have a normal phenotype. Thus, the infant in this vignette with a 46XX chromosomal analysis is not likely to have 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Okay. Very good. Now, aromatase deficiency prevents conversion of testosterone to the estrogens. It, it, it prevents the step of testosterone to estradiol. Thus, andros, androstenedione is not ultimately converted to estrone. And affected females have Mullerian duct structures and absent Wolfian duct structures evident by ambiguous genitalia or clitoromegaly. Affected females may also have multicystic ovaries, tall stature, virilization at puberty, and delayed bone age. If the fetus is exposed to maternal androgen progesterone therapy between 8 to 13 weeks gestation, the female fetus is at risk for ambiguous genitalia, including posterior fusion of the vagina, scrotalization of the labia, and some fusion of the urethral folds. If the female fetus is exposed to these maternal hormones after 13 weeks gestation, the fetus may develop clitoromegaly. And then, uh, obviously, the congenital adrenal hyperplasia group uh, of enzymatic disorders uh, can lead to ambiguous genitalia. Uh, deficiencies in 21-hydroxylase, 11-beta-hydroxylase, and 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase lead to ambiguous external genitalia in females. Whew. Yeah, I think people need to look at the at the chemical pathway, yeah. especially looking at the androgen-estrogen pro, pro, uh, production because you you go from progesterone, you go through a bunch of, of intermediates with DHEA, et cetera, et cetera, but you get to testosterone, which is the big deal. And then from testosterone, you have two options, which is you can make more of the male hormone, which will then lead you to dihydrotestosterone, or you could go to estradiol and estrone. And basically, the 5-alpha reductase and the aromatase are basically the ones that are going to mod modulate these these two paths. And depending on which one you may be deficient in, you might understand the the um, the phenotype that you're going to be dealing with. Yeah, and you can't just stop at the CAH pathway. You got to get all the way down to yeah. But you could to... sometimes skip the. So sometimes you need you definitely need to know the end products. But right. can you skip a few intermediates sometimes and and still understand the big picture, which is the most important thing. Okay, um, we're doing question 16, Daphna. A 14-day-old mm -hmm. male infant is brought to the emergency department because of difficulty feeding. It's having vomiting. It's having lethargy. Uh, physical examination mm. reveals temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, heart rate of 190 beats per minute, a blood pressure of 55 over 30 with a mean pressure of 34 millimeters of mercury. You have a respiratory rate of 60 breaths per minute. and the Infant's interior fontanelle is sunken. His skin turgor is poor, and cap refill is five seconds. Which of the following lab findings are more consistent? Is most consistent? I'm sorry, with the diagnosis of congenital mm. adrenal hyperplasia, resulting from 21 hydroxylase deficiency. So basically, um, I'm not going to bother you with the with the numbers, but it gives okay, you I, it, yeah. I, I, it gives you um, five choices, and in each choice, you get a sodium, a potassium, and a chloride level. And the bottom line is the sodium level can be either low, normal, or high, 
the potassium can be low or high, and then the chloride can be uh, low, normal, or high, basically. And there's different combinations of them. So sodium of the choice A is sodium 124, potassium is 6.2, chloride 86. So choice B, sodium 132, potassium 5.5, chloride 92. You get the idea. If I do this, you're not going to memorize which one is A, which one is yeah, B. Yeah, right, right. You'll just tell us which one you think okay. is up, down, and so on. I mean, the question really is what happens in 21 hydroxylase deficiency? And you already told us a little bit about that. Um, so 21 means you can cross all the way. Oh, if you're deficient in 21, you're able to cross all the way along the the top stretch, right? So you yeah. can definitely... You could get all the way across. Now, can you get all the way down? So 21, unfortunately, hits you before before you make those mineralocorticoids. Um, yeah, the one we talked about on Monday, I think the DOC, deoxycorticosterone, which is right. like functions a little bit like aldosterone. Like you're right. not making that. <laughs> That's right. So then basically what they're asking it for is like what – what is what is the what's hypoaldosteronism, right? So low sodium oh, what's salt wasting syndrome. What's basically. salt wasting look like? Yeah. Low sodium, high potassium. Very good. So I guess that would be so, choice A. So you have two choice yeah, exactly. So you have so if you look at low sodium, you have two choices, choice A, choice C, but then choice A is the only one that's then associated with a high potassium. So you're absolutely right. The um so the correct answer is choice A, sodium-124, potassium-6.2, chloride-86. Infants with 21-hydroxylase deficiency have the following abnormalities. They have aldosterone deficiency. They cannot convert progesterone to deoxycorticosterone. They also have cortisol deficiency because they cannot convert 17-OH progesterone into 11-deoxycortisol. And they have increased testosterone production because of increased precursors of 17-OH progesterone. Approximately 50 to 75% of affected infants present with salt wasting, usually in the second week of life, with vomiting, dehydration, hyperkalemia, and hyponatremia. I actually forgot that it was in the second week of life. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, That I would, it's, I mean, it seems like a long time. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like it should be right away. (laughs) Yeah. But in the second week of life, 50 to 75% will present with salt waiting. Symptoms may progress to hypotension and to shock. Thus, the infant in this vignette will most likely have a low serum concentra- sodium concentration and elevated potassium and a low serum chloride, serum chloride concentration. Okay. Do we do one more? Uh, that's up to you. All right. I'll ask you the next one. No, uh, I'm supposed to ask you now. <laughs> This is is question 17. Which of the following statements is true about infants and diabetic mothers? Uh, Okay. Is it A, fetal hyperinsulinemic state? That sounds right. Restricts substrate availability for surfactant biosynthesis. We just talked about this. Is it B, (laughs) fetal hyperinsulinism decreases erythropoiesis? C, infants of diabetic mothers with a small left colon have chronic difficulty with intestinal obstruction. D, infants of diabetic mothers with cardiomyopathy frequently have clinical signs of heart failure. Choice A, the hyperinsulinemic state restricts the substrate necessary for uh, surfactant biosynthesis. Well, that was, uh, that was, that's correct. It is choice A. Yeah, that's question of the day. I mean, you you spoke about that. Slam dunk. 
I'll just be quick. Infants of diabetic mothers have a four to six fold increase in surfactant deficiency as a result of decreased surfactant production. Fetal hyperinsulinism is associated with increased erythropoiesis, resulting in polycythemia and indirect hyperbilirubinemia, thickening of the intraventricular septum and left or right ventricular wall that occurs in cardiomyopathy. Infants of diabetic mothers is usually asymptomatic and regresses in the first postnatal year. A small F colon that can occur in infants of diabetic mothers is a transient anomaly. And they use the word chronic in the, in the stem, choice stem. Okay. All right, bud. We did it. See you Sunday. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.